The story of Jonah is about a man who desperately needed a new heart. I'd like to start this morning by sharing with you a story from our lives that some of you may have heard of, but most of you haven't heard this part of our story. As you know, in 1989, our son Tyler was riding a bicycle and was hit by an automobile and was was killed at the hospital. This was October 19th, 1989 at the hospital. Uh, when the doctor told us that he was going to take Tyler, he wanted to know if we wanted to take Tyler off uh, life support because there was no brain activity. And we made the very difficult decision to say yes. Shortly after that, the uh, chaplain of the hospital met with us and asked us if we were interested in organ donation for Tyler. And our church had just been through our church in Lakewood. This is what we were in Lakewood, Colorado, Lakewood Covenant Church. Uh, We had just been through the death of a 16-year-old girl who had cystic fibrosis. And as a result, our church community had talked a lot about organ donation and how important that was. And so many of us in the church had already decided that that was going to be what we would do if something unfortunate would happen to us or a loved one. So when the decision came whether or not to offer Tyler's organs, uh, we said yes. Uh, Even though it was a very difficult time, we said yes. Well, at the very moment of our greatest pain, at the very moment of our deepest heartache, about 800 miles to the west, in Loma Linda, California, a 12-year-old boy was struggling for his life. His name was Aaron Banta. His parents, David and Geraldine Banta, were wonderful Christian people. And Aaron had a disease of his heart that could not be fixed. Uh, For years, uh, they had tried to repair his heart, tried to somehow fix it to where it could work. But finally, the doctor said, unless Aaron gets a heart in the next couple of hours, uh, he's going to die. So at the very moment that Sherry and I and our whole church family community were filled with sorrow and pain, another group of people, 800 miles away in Loma Linda, California, another church family gathered around were rejoicing and praising God that there was a heart that was available. Tyler's heart was uh, um, harvested and taken via helicopter on that journey over to Loma Linda. And within an hour, actually 93 minutes of uh, Tyler's heart being harvested, uh, it was placed in the body of Aaron Banta, who now is a um, 34-year-old father and husband, and living a wonderful, godly life. One of the things we had the privilege to meet the Banta family, it's very unusual, by the way, when you do transplants, you're not supposed to know anything about the family. We'll tell you that story another time. But we got to know the Banta family. And one thing the mother said, Geraldine said, was this. We tried everything to make his heart right. The doctors tried everything to fix his heart. But nothing would work. The only solution to Aaron being saved was a brand new heart. Now, that's the story of Jonah. It's not about a great fish as funny and as wonderful as that is. The story of Jonah is about a man who desperately a brand new heart. Jonah had this uh, rebellious spirit. By the way, I want to apologize. We've had some sound problems today, so I'll have to sit close to... uh, this position because of the microphone. So if I'm not wandering around like I usually do, that's why. But 
So Jonah uh, was this rebellious spirit. Now, he had gone, I mean, he was a prophet of God. Somehow he had gone to prophecy school, maybe Maybe he got C's and D's, I don't know. But uh, he wasn't a very good prophet about the time that God came and gave him a message to give. But his heart was hardened. And I'll tell you why in a moment. But first, let's have a couple of minutes of background information. <clears throat> Excuse me, honey, could you bring me a water, please? Jonah was written during the reign of Jeroboam II in 700, thank you, 780 years before Christ. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. And Assyria was the greatest enemy of Israel. And Nineveh being the greatest city of, uh, of, Nineveh, of, of Assyria was the greatest enemy of the Jewish people. The reason they were enemies is because they were filled with pagans. It was a, a, a bastion of Gentiles. They were all pagans. And these were the mortal enemies of the Israelites. Nineveh was about 500 miles from Galilee, so it wasn't that far. And around their city were eight foot thick walls around in a very heavily fortified. And within those walls were housed about four to five hundred thousand people. Now, to help you understand how deeply the hatred was between Israel and the Ninevites, you have to understand today's hatred between Israel and Arab countries. Whether it's Iran, Iraq, Palestine, 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 Saudi Arabia, any number of Arab countries, there is a deep, as you know, you read the newspapers every day, a deep-seated hatred between the people of God, the Jews, the Hebrews, and the Arab nations. This, in the Old Testament, was part of that story. There was such a hatred that you would rather see someone killed than to live for another moment. So God calls Jonah to go to preach to Nineveh and give them some hope. To go and preach to them and say, if you turn your backs on your wicked ways, you will be saved. That's the message that Jonah was supposed to give to his mortal enemies. It would be akin to this. Let's say a few months ago before Osama bin Laden was killed, let's say that someone told you that your job was to go to Osama bin Laden and lead him to Christ and help him become a Christian. Uh, that would have been very difficult for you, I'm sure. I don't know about you, but after Osama bin Laden was killed, there was this worldwide celebration. I, I never understood that. I, I don't know, maybe I'm different or weird or something. I thought, man, this, I, yeah, I'm glad he's out of the loop. I'm glad he's no longer in power. But man, this kind of celebration over the fact that somebody got killed, it just didn't feel right. But that's the kind of anger and hatred our world had for the man who was responsible for 9-11. That's how much hatred, and some of us still feel some of that today. Every uh, September 11th, we celebrate, not celebrate, but remember 9-11, and we have, again have that something inside of us rises up about, well, those, 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 those radical Arabs, those radical Muslims, and what are we going to do with them? And, and Osama bin Laden was the, was the, was the light uh, or what was the, um, you know, the lightning rod for that whole thing. So what would it be for you to go to people that you hate deeply and tell them about God? Jonah wasn't up for it. Again, he probably just got average grades in prophet school because he said, I'm out of here. 
So the first thing we see in our text, and I'd like you to take notes. You can take notes in your um, outline if you would like. The first thing you want to write down is Jonah's rebellion. Jonah's rebellion. Look at verse 3. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Now, the, the first phrase in this verse and the last are pretty much identical. Jonah ran away from the Lord. In the last phrase, Jonah ran, uh, sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Now, one of the things that you will note about, um, oh, sorry, one of the things that you'll note about uh, the story of Jonah is um, this idea of fleeing or running away from the Lord. Now, one of the motifs in the book of Jonah is humor. I don't think there's, well, I know there's not any book in the Bible that has more irony, more humor, more tongue-in-cheek information than the book of Jonah. I mean, just the way it starts out. Jonah was going to flee from the Lord. How ridiculous is that? How, how, how silly is that to think that we can run away from the Lord? And then we stop and say, yeah, that was really dumb of Jonah. And then we think, well, now, wait a minute. There's been like eight times in my life when I've tried to run away from the Lord. There's been all these different times in my life when I... Should I turn this other one off, Gary? No, that didn't help. Uh, there's been all these times in my life when I have tried to assume that God couldn't see me or see my behavior. I used to imagine, I know this is childish, but when I would go to the casino gambling... I would imagine that there was this roof over my head at a casino would keep God from seeing me. I mean, how ridiculous that is for a mature follower of Jesus Christ. But don't we do that? Aren't we like Jonah? We say, well, I'm going to run away from the Lord. So here's the story. And you heard it uh, in the Reader's Theater. And you also saw it in a little cartoon. Tarshish is a big city. And uh, my guess is that Jonah decided he was going to run away to the big city He's going to find a new job. I mean, this job, this career of being a prophet hasn't worked out too well. So he's going to find a new job, a new place to live, maybe find a, a family there. He's going to find a place to hide. So when he's, on the, uh, when he's on the Mediterranean Sea, there's this great storm that comes up. And, and let me say a side note here. God always uses storms. God doesn't always create storms. Let's be honest. Sometimes we make our own storms, right? But God always uses storms. You think of the storms in your life. You think of the times in your life when you have been set upon. You think of the times in your life when you're, you have been crushed in your spirit. Those stormful times, those storm-filled times in your life when nothing was going right. God always uses those storms. It's kind of a Romans 8.28 thing all over us in our world. So this great storm came up and the sailors were afraid of Jonah's God. And now they, the sailors had decided that their own God was pretty useless. Now, there's a difference between the sailors' gods, these pagan gods. And uh, one thing about pagan gods is they were always um, unfamiliar to human beings. Pagan gods were always the kind of gods that were far away. That the only time they really had any interaction with people is when they were looking for you to crush you because you had done something wrong. 
So this idea of Jonah's God, and they asked him about his God, he said, my God is Jehovah. And Jehovah means I am. I exist. Here I am. That's what all the, the word Jehovah means, all of those things, Yahweh. And so, so this new idea of a God that could be known, a God that could be personal, this is something brand new to the sailors. And they were intrigued by this idea. They were thinking, well, maybe this God of Jonah is, listen, they woke Jonah up out of his sleep. They were angry. How come you're not, you know, helping us out with this? And what about your God? Is he any better than ours? Ours stink. You know, maybe your God works. And, and so they cast lots and decided that Jonah was the guy that was the problem. And it was interesting. Um, in the first service, um, Phil Cummings uh, was here. He's a, he's a Commodore in the Navy. And one of the things, if you've ever been in the Navy, one of the things you've heard of is this idea of a Jonah. If there's somebody on board your ship that seems to be bad luck, he's called a Jonah. How many of you have seen the, uh, um, uh, the Pirates of the Caribbean movies? Okay. Oh, you're all sinners. No, they're not. But they're great movies. Uh, no, Pirates of the they're great movies. And I'm every, I know, I know about all 25 of them or how many there are. But I know at least on two of them, they talk about a Jonah. Okay, someone who brings bad luck. So that all comes from this story uh, 800 years before Christ. So, so here's uh, Jonah, and they decide he's the problem. And at first, the sailors say, well, we're not going to throw you overboard because we kind of like your God because he's personal. He's, he's Yahweh. It's, he's a cooler God than ours. And finally, they say, well, we give up. So they throw him over the side, and immediately the storm calms. And then the Bible says, not a whale... But a great fish comes, swallows up Jonah, and he's in the belly of the, the great fish for three days and three nights. Here we find a picture of Jonah in desperate need of a brand new heart. Not of a checkup, not of a fix-up, not of trying to be a little bit better, not trying to be a better prophet. But here we had a man whose heart was so filled with hatred for those who were different than he was, so filled with hatred for the Ninevites that he needed a brand new heart. So that's where our story really kicks into high gear. Now, again, I told you at the beginning that, um, back here, I told you at the beginning that it's, a, it's not a story about a fish. That's not what Jonah's about. It's about a man that needs a new heart. But a fish is part of the story. So now some of you may not be used to being around Christians or the Bible, and, and that's OK. So I, let me tell you this. If you don't believe the story, that's OK with me, because the story still has great power and great meaning. I happen to believe it. I happen to believe that it's a true story. Uh, but, but if you don't, it's OK. You still get a lot out of this. So uh, for those of you that really it really matters to you to know about the fish, because you kind of forget about the rest of the story. All you see is this big fish. Let me give you two minutes. OK, that's all you get. Okay, so here's about the big fish. Can you imagine what it would look like or what it would be like to live in the belly of a great fish for three days? I can't imagine. But consider this. There are whales, uh, whales of the size that a man could live inside their stomach. And I'll talk about that in a minute. Now, one of the great fish that could do this, could house a man, is a rhinodon typicus or a whale shark. They can go through the water at high speeds, catch their prey, strain out the water from their mouths, and swallow whatever is left. In 1933, uh, one whale shark was found off, the, uh, off of Cape Cod. His mouth was 12 feet wide. 
12 feet wide, his mouth. He was over 100 feet long. His mouth was so big he could have swallowed a horse. Now, these whale sharks have four to six compartments in their stomach. In other words, they have room for like a colony of men, you know, a whole family, you know, six people. And uh, uh, they could have a choice of their rooms if they wanted to. But the head of this whale, in the head of this whale, there are storage chambers where, which air is allowed in and because of the enlargement of their nasal sinus. Now, that can measure, this, this area can measure seven feet high, seven feet wide, and 14 feet, feet long, where there's actually air trapped inside of this animal. Now, for those who say, okay, that's a whale shark, but I want to hear about whales. Okay. A dog was once found alive in a whale's belly after being there for six days. He came out, he was alive and barking when he was found. Now, some whales have been found with other sea creatures as big as an ox. Men have been found, on two occasions, men have been found alive in whales. A man by the name of James Bartley was thought to have been drowned at sea. Two days after he disappeared, some sailors made a catch of a a whale. When they cut it up, they found the man alive. He was unconscious, but he was alive, and he went on to live a long, long life. Okay? Is that enough for you whale people? Okay, enough of that. Now, back to the real story. So here's Jonah. Three days and three nights sitting in gastric juices with a headband made out of seaweed. Here's a guy that's in there. And now, what would you do if you were in the belly of a great fish, whale gastric juices all around you, flowing all around you, seaweed floating wrapped around your head? What would you do? Well, most of us would um, ponder or think or wonder. Or pray. I'm sure Jonah did all of those things. But you see, when, when you're in the belly of a great fish and you don't know how long you're going to be in there, you have time to think. I mean, he, he wasn't worried about the Ninevites anymore. He wasn't even thinking about the Ninevites. He was only worried about his own survival. So what does he do? Again, remember, this, this whole book is filled with humor, so it's okay to laugh, okay? In my notes, it says you're supposed to laugh at certain times. Be sure you do. So uh, here's this guy sitting there thinking, what do I do now? You know, seaweed all over his head, gastric juice all around him. And he said, I think I'm going to think. Think about what I did, right? Uh, Sherry used to nanny uh, for a family up in Paradise Valley. And one of the little girls, her name was Rachel. She was four years old at the time. She did something naughty. And nanny Sherry sat her down in a timeout chair and said, you need to sit here and think about what you did and then come and apologize to Sherry. And Rachel said, well, I'll sit here, but I'm not going to think. Okay, so that's the way our rebellious nature is at times, isn't it? But I think Jonah sat there and I think he thunk. I think that's exactly what he did. I think he pondered and wondered and eventually decided, you know what What I'm going to do? I'm going to pray. I remember the last time I was at the casino in 1997. Tears sorrow and fear washed over me. I found in my own rebellious spirit that I was running from God and this storm came about in my life. It was a trauma. And maybe for you it's, it's some other kind of storm, but you find yourself in the middle of gastric juices and seaweed and you say, what do I do now? And so the question that I would ask you is I think the same question that Jonah asked himself when he was 
in the belly of this great fish. And the question is this. How well is this rebellion thing working out? Now, how's this rebellion thing working out for me? I remember thinking about that in my days of gambling and deception. How well is this thing working out for you, Dwayne? How's it going with this? I'm sure Jonah asked the same things. So Jonah comes face to face with this, this, this literal trauma, this sitting in the juices of a whale with seaweed wrapped around his head. He finds himself in this situation. And the next part of the sir, we find that Jonah repents. Now, you know what repentance is, okay? Repentance is, and I'll get away from the mic, but you'll still hear me. Repentance is walking away, uh, walking toward your own self and your own ideas and your own thoughts and your own beliefs. Walking towards what you want for your life. Repentance means to turn around 180 degrees and walk towards God and righteousness and faith and eternity. That's what repentance is. It's literally making a decision to turn your life around. In Jonah's pondering, in his musing, in his thinking and in his praying, he decides to repent. Great idea, Jonah. And I hope that that idea is yours as well. Listen to what this repentance sounded like from his prayer in chapter 2. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. Now, again, even that's funny to me. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. What else are you going to do? He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord. And he answered me. From the depths of the grave, I called for your help. And you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, O Lord, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever, but you brought my life up from the pit. O Lord, my God, when my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs, but I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Now, even his prayer, I think, is remarkable. But in that prayer, he says that I will sing a song of thanksgiving. Can you imagine? Probably good, probably good sound inside a whale. I mean, good acoustics and everything. Can you imagine singing a song of thanksgiving and praise? Not knowing, actually believing, probably 99% sure that you're going to perish, that you're going to die. But saying, Lord, I've done it my own way. I failed you. I've turned my back on you. I've rebelled against you. I've tried to use this old, broken down heart for your sake. Lord, I've tried all of this and nothing, nothing has worked. Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever found your time of trauma or storm or seaweed to be so big? And so great that you finally say, Lord, my only hope is you. My only chance to survive is you. Lord, what?
do I do? And that leads us to this, this prayer of repentance from Jonah. We see a lot of stories in the Bible about people like Jonah. The prodigal son, after spending all of his father's wealth, we find him in a pigsty. And his job now is to be a pig feeder. What a joyful job that was. And he says to himself, what am I doing? When I could go back to the father, what am I doing? I'm sure Jonah said, what am I doing in the belly of this great fish? David, after his sin with Bathsheba, Lord, have mercy on me. What am I doing, Lord? Why did I do that, Father? Peter, after he started sinking in the water when he was walking on the water, he said, Lord, save me. Lord, help me. I'm sure Peter said, what am I doing taking my eyes off of Jesus? And your story? Your story? Lord, what am I doing? Why do I think I can hide from you? Why do I think I can, I can walk away and live my own life my way when it always fails when I turn my back on you? What pigsty, belly of the fish, corner of the casino did you cry out to God from? Does he hear you there? Does God hear you in that distress? David cried out in Psalm 51, Lord, have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. God wants our hearts not to be fixed. He wants them to be renewed. And they can only be renewed by the power of a loving, faithful God. So what do we learn from this prayer of Jonah? Several things, and you can write this down in your sermon notes. First thing we learn from this prayer is when you hit rock bottom, there's only one place to look up. Now, I can't think of any rockier bottom than sitting in the belly of a great fish, wondering if you're going to be able to take a breath or wondering if you're ever going to live beyond this experience. Could it get any lower for Jonah? Could it get any worse? He said in verse 2, from the depths of the grave. That, that, that phrase is in the Hebrew, Sheol, which is like the Old Testament version of hell. I'm banished from your sight. I'm sure God would say to him, yeah, you're banished from my sight, Jonah, but who ran away from who? <laughs> you know? And yet I will look again. He looked up and he saw God. So not only did he hit rock bottom, but another thing we learned from this prayer is that deliverance, salvation, redemption can only come from God. We can't save ourselves. It can only come from God. Verse 6 says, you brought me up out of the depths. I remember the times of my greatest misery brought on by myself. And even the times of misery brought on by something else. It was always this simple prayer that got me back to my faith. Lord Jesus, my only hope is in you. I have no longer any hope in my hands or my feet or my mind to get or to, uh, uh, to make something happen for myself. Lord Jesus, my only hope is you. 
When you find yourselves in the belly of a great fish, when you find yourself in a, in a great storm, when you find yourself in a bind, that it seems like nothing can get you out of it. Your only prayer is that. Lord Jesus, my only help is you. My only salvation comes from you. Jonah said while he was in the belly, he said, I remembered you, Lord. And I'm sure the Lord wanted to say sarcastically, well, why did you have to remember me? It's because you forgot me. Why did you turn your back on me? Why did you run away from me? But no, God doesn't say any of those things. Do you know what God says? He said, my grace is sufficient for you. The unmerited favor of God. God doesn't scold Jonah. God doesn't point his finger at him. He just hears this prayer of repentance and he receives him by grace. Salvation comes from the Lord. We also learn from this prayer that God is the God of a second chance. Look at verse 9. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. Now, I'm sure Jonah has vowed this himself to God many, many times. I'm sure he did that. But listen to this next phrase. What I have vowed, I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish and out it vomited Jonah unto dry land. Jonah says once again, we don't know how many times he said this before. Lord, I promise the vow I make to you, I will keep. How many times? How many times will God hear your prayer? How many times before God gets sick of you and sick and tired of your, oh, yeah, you're saying you're sorry again. How many times will he finally say, okay, stop. I don't want to hear anymore. I, I don't believe it ever happens. How many times does God lavish his grace on you? Yeah, I'm sure he gets tired of you doing the same old things over and over again. But God says, I want you. I want you. I grace you. I grace you. I need you. I love you. I will do everything in my power to always forgive you and bring you back to me. That's the kind of God that I want to serve. And the last thing we see from this prayer is that Jonah is delivered. Now, it's not in a very classy way. You know, it would have been, you know, if we had been writing the Bible, we would have had a submarine come up along next to the, you know, to the fish and, and open his mouth and he'd just walk out onto the submarine or to a great boat or something like that. But the fact that this is very raw and the way it's portrayed, that the whale or the, the great fish just throws up Jonah onto dry land with, with vomit and seaweed and everything else on you know what it indicates to me? Certainly he was delivered. He was saved. He was redeemed. He, he's not going to die, right? So that's the symbolism of our salvation. So he was redeemed. He was saved. But he still was experiencing the consequences of his sin. He still experienced the consequences of his sin. Don't think that your sin can always be wiped clean. Okay, I don't have to ever pay for that sin. I don't have to pay for that addiction. I don't have to pay for that broken marriage. No, as long as we're in this life, we will experience the consequences of our sins. But the good news is that you are redeemed. You are saved. Psalm 103, listen to these words. Praise the Lord, O my soul. All my inmost being praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits. He forgives all my sins and heals all my diseases. He redeems my life from the pit and crowns me with love and compassion. Isn't that beautiful? Did you know that that's the God 
that you serve. That's the God that wants to redeem you. The God that wants to deliver you from your past sins. That wants to give you a fresh start. He forgives all my sins. Not some of them or not just the big ones. And he heals all my diseases. He redeems my life from the pit. And crowns me with love and compassion. Isn't that beautiful? God's grace is so big that he crowns us with love and compassion. Jonah came to a place like the Israelites did many times in the book of Exodus when there was no one else to turn to. He decided that, well, I really need God this time. I can't get out of this mess myself. I really need God. And I cannot live without him. Uh, There's a legend, it's a wonderful story, about a young man who went to see Buddha. Okay? And uh, he went there to find his way to God. Buddha took him down to the river, and the young man thought the teacher was going to perform a ritual cleansing or something. But instead, Buddha immersed this young man's head into the water for a dangerously long time. And the man was thrashing about, and finally Buddha brought him up so he could capture some air. And Buddha said to him, what were you thinking about when I held your head under water? He asked. And the young man said, air, (laughs) air, that's all I was thinking about. And Buddha said to the young man, as soon as you want God as much as you wanted air, then you will see God. There's truth in that story. So often we as modern day middle class evangelical Christians, we have it pretty easy. Yeah, we go through our storms, some of the storms of our own doing, some are not. Some are because we live in a broken world. Some are because somebody else storms on us. But the fact is, we go through storms and we handle them fairly well. But we're talking about a God who sent his son Jesus to die for your sins. We're talking about a God who jealously loves you. We're talking about a God who wants you to love him more than anything else on this planet. We are talking about a God who wants you to say, Lord, I want you like air. I want you so much that it's like I I have to have you the way I have to have the next breath of air in order to survive. The Bible talks about the relationship that we have with God is like we are the bride and Jesus is the bridegroom. We are the bride of Christ. He doesn't want a dating relationship with you. He doesn't want to go out once a week to church and hold your hand and show you where to find Hezekiah in the Bible. He wants a deeply intimate marriage relationship with you. He wants you to love him and want him like you love and want air. Yesterday at Jessica and Omar's wedding, uh, during their vows, Uh, These two beautiful young people, most of you know them. Omar's one of our drummers. They're both very active in our church. As they were giving their vows, they were looking into each other's eyes. And you could see what they were saying and thinking. It's that. I want you, Jessica. I want you, Omar, in my life like I want air. I want God in my life like I want air. That's the message of Jonah. And you can't have that kind of passion and desire for God unless you have a new heart. can't do it. You need a new heart.
The last thing we see is Jonah's realization. Again, you can write these down in your bulletin, but just a few things I want to tick off quickly. Jonah's realization was this. How great is God's mercy? How great is God's mercy? No matter how many times I drift away, no matter how many times I turn my back on God, how great is God's mercy? The Bible says it this way. We read it in Deuteronomy 31, and we read it again in um, Hebrews 13. And it's this. God says, I will never let you go. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will never let you go. That's God's great mercy. We also recognize that about God's perseverance. Jonah, you can run. You can hide in a boat on its way to Tarshish. You can do all of these things, but Jonah, I'm going to come after you. I'm going to hunt you down. And I'm going to be the hound of every man and every woman, every boy, every girl, every teenager. I will hound you, and I'll tell you why. Because that's how much I love you. I desire a relationship with you more than anything else on this planet. I will hunt you down. God's perseverance is I will never let you go. We also see God's sense of humor. I love this about God. That, yeah, there's irony and there's tongue-in-cheek and there's humor, but all of it comes back to this one thing that says, you know what? You do things your way and you're going to end up in gastric juices. You do things my way and you will have a life that you can't even begin to imagine. The last thing we see is God's love for the unlovely. Next week, we're going to look at that in some detail, chapters 3 and 4. And this idea, and some of you aren't going to like this, so please come back because you'll see how tough you are. Uh, You're not going to like the idea that God has called us to love those who are hated. God has called us to love those who are despised, like those Ninevites. Or those people that have done that terrible thing to that child or that that crazy guy over in Norway, uh, that God has somehow called us to love those? How do we do that? And that's what we're going to look at next week. Jonah desperately needed a new heart. So do we. His old one was filled with hatred for those who were unlike him, that were different from him. His heart was filled with rebellion towards God. His heart was filled with pride you know, uh, how many of you have seen the show, Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? Okay. I, I saw it once until I realized I wasn't, so I never watched it again. Uh, but um, uh, there, there, Jonah could have a new show, and it would be this. I'm smarter than Jehovah. Right? I'm smarter than Jehovah. I, I know more than he does. I've got a better idea. I, I, I'm not going to Nineveh. I'm going to Tarshish. I'm smarter than Jehovah. But, you know, we laugh at Jonah, but uh, we play the same game. God, I know better for my life than you do. I want to do this. I want to go here. I'm going to do that. I'm on my path. I'm doing my own thing. I'm smarter than Jehovah. There's a great verse in Ezekiel 18. And I want to close with this. Here's what it says. Therefore, O house of Israel, I will judge you. Each one according to his ways, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent. Turn away from all your offenses then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourselves of all the offenses you have committed 
and get a new heart and a new spirit. Isn't that beautiful? God says, get rid of your offenses. You know what that is? That's repentance. That's turning away and walking towards God. Get rid of all your offenses. And I promise that I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. Would you pray with me, please?